This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut, Babette. We would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, from whose land we are broadcasting at Radio 3CR, and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. You are listening to the Climate Action Show. This is our federal election special for 2022. Now, there's been a school strike for climate last week, and at the Smart Energy Conference, which I attended, the air was full of the change that many people are going to make happen. We can't cover all the parties here, but today's show um, uh, showcases Chris Bowen from the Labour Party, David Shoebridge from the Greens, and then in Wentworth at a forum on a knife edge seat, it's one of those seats where they're on a very small margin, we hear from Dave Sharma, Liberal, Daniel Lukovitz, Liberal Democrat, Allegra Spender, Independent, and Tim Murray Labour. Now, Chris Bowen was generous with his time, and if he's the next climate energy minister, there's no doubt he will accelerate the uptake of renewable energy and encourage non-carbon energy exports. They're going to put a lot of money into the grid and trying to diversify in the suburbs so that people have more of those community batteries to make their solar uh, uptake more worthwhile. However, for climate activists, we know that in the eyes of the world, we are only responsible for the emissions at home. And a lot of the focus in the uh, election lead up is all about getting our emissions down here. But that's not the big thing that we're responsible for. It's the exported emissions. It's our coal and gas. We're in the top three carbon exporters, and I think that Chris Bowen might be still sharing the view of many politicians, stopping our carbon exports won't make a difference. What I'm not prepared to do is go in and say, listen, we're going to close down your coal mine. Um, mm. Yeah, the coal will still be burnt you know, by another country. They'll just get it from another coal mine, but you've got to give up your job, even though emissions aren't going to come down. Uh, I know not everybody wants to hear that argument, but I'm, I'm just not prepared to have that conversation. If you have any comments on this show, we... Um, we'd love you to send us a message. You can phone 3CR on 039419 And I promise we'll read your comments on the air. It's really important that we get a broad view about what's so important in climate action. Chris Bowen is the Shadow Minister for Climate Change and Energy. He's the Federal Minister for McMahon in Sydney, and he's taking a plan called Powering Australia to the Coming Election. So welcome to the Climate Action Radio Show, Chris. Would you start by telling us what voters around the country are telling you? How much does climate count in sort of marginal electorates or with swinging voters? Well, climate's always a big issue, uh, Vivian, and it is in this election. Um, I think the big change, though, um, between this and previous elections is that people are more and more, I think, seeing through the ridiculous and fallacious argument that sometimes, somehow action on climate comes at the cost of jobs or the cost of cost of living, which is, of course, you know, the Liberal Party playbook to run that argument, and they're still running it. We've seen that on the front pages of some of the newspapers over recent days and weeks, but I find more and more people just see through that. They know the world is changing they know we have to do this. And I know that while action on climate change is a moral obligation, it's also in the economic best interests of our country. And I find that's the case. You know, I make that case around the country, including in the regions, and I find people are very receptive to that argument. That's great to hear. So even in marginal electorates, they're, they're positive about climate action. Yeah, I mean, you always, you know, no community is entirely homogenous and you'll mm. always get views. You know, and climate change is one of those areas where it's very unlikely that people say you've always got the balance right. There's always people say, oh, we want more or we want less. You know, yeah. I get all that feedback. Um, but I, I do find that when I make the case that action on climate change is good for our country, because I think that's the case we've got to win. You know, we've, 
consistently won the argument that action on climate change is a moral obligation. We've consistently won the argument that it's a moral obligation to future generations as well as to the rest of the world. I think we've consistently won that argument. We haven't always consistently won the argument that it's good for our country to act, that it's mm. in the economic best interest of our country, that actually action on climate change creates jobs, actually action on climate change reduces power prices because the cheapest form of energy is renewable energy. Actually action on climate change is important for our national security in the Indo-Pacific with so many millions of people potentially impacted by rising sea levels and all the other implications. Um, that's the argument we have to win. And I think we are, you know, never complacent. Uh, there's still a few weeks to go in this election, but I think more and more people are receptive to those arguments. Yeah. The listeners to this show, uh, many of them are really brave climate campaigners. They're doing really out there sort of actions uh, to create that public awareness to change the you know the conversation on this and they know that Australia is among the top three of coal and gas exporters and they won't be satisfied with just getting Australia's emissions down they want to know about the subsidies to coal and gas and I wonder if we're just up there among Russia and Saudi Arabia third after those countries of exporters what why are we subsidizing those industries when really it, it should be an even playing field? Well, I, I would argue we're not. Um, there are subsidies in the system, but I don't think those subsidies apply to coal experts, exports in particular by and large. Um, I, I, I make a few points in response, Vivian. You know, I welcome very much climate activism. Obviously, I'm passionate about climate action. Um, that's, this is the job I asked for. Uh, it's controversial, but I asked for this job because I believe it's the most important challenge facing society. So why wouldn't I want to be the person writing the policy? Mm. Uh, and I welcome climate activism very much. I don't welcome, you know, protests which disrupt society um, and I think put the cause back. So, um, you know, we've seen a bit of that in Sydney and in other places in recent weeks. I think that is deeply destructive and sets the course back and, and makes people much less resistant to hearing the message on climate change. So I just made that point. But in, in relation to the fundamentals of your question about coal exports, coal exports, I, I was very clear about this from the time, the day I became shadow climate minister. We've got to be honest with people that the world is changing, that 80% of our trading partners are committed to zero, and that's going to put pressure on coal communities. But the market is making that decision. And I am more than happy to go into a community and say, listen, um, we, this coal-fired power station is going to close soon. We are not going to replace it with a new one. We're moving to renewable energy. That's going to change jobs. I'm, I, I do that all the time. That's part of my job. Um, what I'm not prepared to do is go in and say, listen, we're going to close down your coal mine. Um, mm. Yeah, the coal will still be burnt you know, by another country. They'll just get it from another coal mine, but you've got to give up your job, even though emissions aren't going to come down. Uh, I know not everybody wants to hear that argument, but I'm, I'm just not prepared to have that conversation. We, our accounting under the world system, not a system I wrote, our accounting, goes to emissions we produce. You know, we don't say, oh, well, look, the cars on our roads, we don't have to move to EVs because those cars weren't made here. They were made in Germany and Japan, so they're responsible for the emissions. No, mm. we're responsible for the emissions, just as the countries that burn coal are responsible for their emissions. That's the way the system works. Now, um, our climate policy, you know, uh, reduces our emissions by 43% by 2030. We can talk about that. It gets us to 82% renewables. It's big and ambitious. As I said, not everybody will always say it's enough. I'm used to that. And um, there's plenty of people who will say it's too much as well. I'm used to that too. Welcome to climate policy. But it's ambitious. We've got 92 months now between now and 2030. That's not long, not long, Vivian, to make a big change uh, like this. Um, we've left it too late as a country. We should have started years ago. Uh, a previous Labor government was trying. Then we've had nine years of delay and denial. And that nine years comes at a cost. And it means we've missed out on nine years of action. It means it is hard to reduce emissions by 2030. We have to, because it's the next 10 years that counts, but it's going to be a big task. So the policy we put forward is ambitious. It's never going to please everyone, yeah. uh, but it focuses on our own emissions. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. And all around the world, countries are focusing on their own emissions. But, you know, the, the countries that are exporting, and, like, we're going to have a gas-led recovery from COVID from the present government. Well, we're not. We're not. <laughs> well, what I mean, about you? Fallacy. <laughs> no, it's a fallacy. It doesn't exist. There's no gas that recovery. There's not, not a job to be created by. Mm. Um, it's just a complete fabrication. Um, so, no, we don't support the alleged gas lead recovery because it's a fraud. Mm. Now, again, I'll be honest with people and say gas is going to be in the system for some time because while we're building storage, 
of renewable energy, we don't only need peaking and firming, and gas is the best way of doing that. You've really only got three options when peaking and firming, coal, gas, and nuclear. Coal isn't going to, you know, coal-fired power stations are going to keep closing. I don't support nuclear. So then you're left with gas. Now, the gas is not a transition fuel in my view, but the virtue of gas power, fire, uh, powered uh, um, power stations, gas-fired power stations, is you can turn them on and off at 15 minutes' notice. Right? Coal's got to burn all day, even if it's necessary or not necessary. So gas, to, to that degree, is um, you know more efficient and better for emissions. And we need to have it. We've got a massive task. I'm very passionate about renewable energy. I want a lot more of it in the system. But I also want reliability. And that means we're going to build, have to build a lot of storage because, um, by definition, reliable, uh, renewable energy is more intermittent. That means we need a lot of storage. It means we need batteries pumped hydro and hydrogen, green hydrogen, and we're nowhere near what we need. Nowhere near what we need um, for storage. So that means we're going to need some gas in the system for some time to come. Now, I'm going to be honest about that, but I'm also going to be honest and say there's no gas in recovery. It's a a fabrication and um, there won't be any jobs created by, you know, massive expansions of gas extraction. Right. Good. That's where I want to go. Um, The the next sector that is keen to know and these are people these are sectors I interview all the time and and the one group is the First Nations people and I don't think they have anything like the power in Parliament as the fossil fuel lobby and we report often from Gomorrah people up in the Piliga fending off Santos and the Wangan and Jigalingu people up in the Galilee Basin trying to fend off Adani and the Beetaloo Basin, where they're very frightened about the potential for that gas to be piped out and the Artesian Basin to be um, impacted. Plus, we're worried about the climate impact of all that gas. So what do you say to them, to First Nations people? I tell you, I was at a meeting outside the uh, tribunal, Native Title Tribunal. All the trade unions were there. There were a lot of trade unions there with all their banners outside there saying, we're going to stand with the Gomorrah people against that you know, what they want to have their rights over that land and not to have it. Yeah, sacrificed. well, let me make let me make a couple of points. I want First Nations people, traditional owners, uh, very much at the table in all government decisions. Um, and that's why I support a First Nations voice to Parliament constitutionally enshrined. I mean, it's actually, I mean, it's very important, but it's actually practical as well. Mm. That's the best mechanism for giving First Nations people a direct voice to the Parliament. Now, I would, I would say this, in my experience, I meet with First Nations people all the time. They're not, they don't all speak with one voice because they come from different communities with different views. There are some traditional owners who have different views to the ones you just outlined about what should happen on their land. Um, and sometimes, you know, very close, including across the Northern Territory. Um, different elders have different views about things like uh, extraction on their land. So we can't generalise and say all traditional owners are, yeah. have this view. It's just not true. And, and uh, you know, certainly the Northern Land Council, for example, has made that point to me very strongly. Mm-hmm. That different traditional owners have different views uh, about questions like that. But you know, all those views are legitimate and should be at the table. Uh, and I think a voice to Parliament would then give not only directly through the voice, but you know, would then give that voice an opportunity to express how their other voices within the Indigenous uh, uh, community should be expressed and and respected. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, another sector is youth. We get a lot of the youth activists and some of them are now voting age, I think. The ones who started off, we interviewed them a few years ago, now they'll be voting this year. Um, They're school strikers for climate. And you said you'd like to host a COP29 in partnership with our Pacific neighbours, and that would be 2024. What can you achieve by then to convince these very well-informed young people? Well, yes, we do want to host top 29 ideally in Australia we were embarrassed at Glasgow and I wanted to not only frankly have Australia not embarrassed I want us to be proud of our climate record and hence I want us to host a COP so we can send the message to the world that Australia's done new management and I want to do that in partnership and co-host with any Pacific Island nation who chooses to co-host it with us I can't think of a better opportunity for Pacific Island nations to put their case to the world that um, things need to change and I co-hosting it with our Pacific Island brothers and sisters, I think would be a, a wonderful thing. I don't know whether we'll win the bid to host COP29 or not, but we'll give it a good red hot go. And if we don't win that one, we'll try another one, but I want to host a COP yeah. uh, in the next few years. Um, but I talk to young people a lot. And I, the conversation I've just had with you, I would regularly have with groups of young people, or whether it's a podcast or directly or what have you. Um, and again, 
uh, I find most young people are ambitious but pragmatic. They know that we're starting late. They know that this last nine years have been wasted and therefore there's a lot of catching up to do. And they know that maybe if we'd set out to do something in 2016, it's going to be different what we set out to do in 2022. They know that. But they want real action and they'll get it under us and they'll get it with me as the minister. Great. This is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yauru country. And it's great to be down in Melbourne and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. Well, let's hear about the jobs because that's really a big part of your policy and We'd like to hear more about those 604,000 jobs that you'll create mostly in the regions. And also how will you deploy and retrain work or train new workers with new skills? Um, I, I always have in mind the German trade unionist who came on air with us. We interviewed him and he came out to Australia to tell us about how they transitioned from the coal rural region economy. I know they weren't exporting coal, probably not as great quantities as we do, but Still, it was something he was really proud of. They had all the stakeholders at the table. No one left behind in over, I think, 20 years. You know, a lot of positive things came out of that. They were really proud of it. And I would love to be proud of something initiated by our government to speed up the move to clean energy exports and manufacturing here using um, renewable energy. What, what's your vision for that? Well, um, very much it's been a focus of our policy because, as I said at the outset, we have to win the economic argument, and that's really a jobs argument. Our policies would create 604,000 jobs. That's what's been modelled. That's not my figure. That's the figure of our modellers. Uh, and, you know, it makes sense because the transition to renewable energy is going to be job-intensive and renewable energy is the cheapest form of energy by far because the sun doesn't send a bill and the wind doesn't send a bill, and that energises manufacturing because energy costs are such important such an important factor for uh, manufacturing and importantly five out of six of those jobs are in the regions so you know sometimes this gets painted in fact all the time this gets painted there's a cities versus regions argument mainly by our political opponents who say climate change is an inner city obsession and Scott mm. Morrison talks about inner city wine bars I mean I find that deeply offensive because mm. the job of a prime minister is meant to be to unite Australians uh, not divide Australians and he just constantly divides Australians mm. against each mm. other um, but uh, so that's important that five out of six of the jobs are in the regions because, it, yeah. as I say, when I'm in the regions, you know, you've powered Australia for decades and, you know, we thank you for it. And guess what? You're going to continue to power us under a renewable economy. That's where the jobs are going to be. Could you describe some of them? Say the Hunter Valley. What kind of jobs diversification would you see there? Well, I mean, I think the Hunter Valley will be a centre for hydrogen. I think the Hunter Valley will be increasingly a manufacturing hub. I mean, you know, we've we put 60 million solar panels on roofs in the last decade and 1% of them have been made in Australia. There's one small factory, it's growing admittedly, but still fairly modest by world standards in Adelaide. We, I mean, there could be factories making solar panels in Hunter Valley in Queensland. I mean, you ask for examples, look at Gladstone in Queensland. I mean, it's a very, you know, in, in traditionally energy intensive, energy producing town. I don't know if you've been to Gladstone, but you know, there's, there's, there's power stations, there's aluminium smelters, there's a lot, and they're very prominent in the town. Um, it's also going to be the home of an electro, a green hydrogen electrolyzer. It's going to be the home of a hydrogen hub. It's going to be the, an export hub. Um, it's going to be thousands of jobs created through renewable energy in Gladstone um, as the world changes. Um, because, you know, it's, it's a place like Gladstone. It's got access to a port. It's got access to a strong energy grid so they can feed energy into the national energy market grid. It's got access to skills because, you know, the skills in traditional industry are the same as the skills or similar to the skills required for uh, renewable energy so there's um, plenty to do. Yeah well we interviewed a lot of people at Collie over in Western Australia and they were doing the same thing transitioning a coal intensive area but a great diversity of jobs I was surprised at the number of different things they had on you know different private enterprises were trying there but I wonder is, a, is there a, going to be a federal government plan like a transition plan for, for regions mm. that are coal affected? So it's clear yeah, to well, everyone which way we're going, you know? Yeah. Transition is not a term I use, but, yes, the transformation is a term I use because okay. the economy is going to transform. Um, and, yeah, we'll work with communities. I don't want to leave communities, you know, out to dry. Uh, as I said, change is coming. We have to be honest about that. 
if you deny change, like Nat Canavan does and says it's not going to happen, it's not coming, well, you're, you're really betraying those communities. So we'll have, um, you know, we'll work with those communities. I don't want to, I don't want to outline it all from Canberra. I want to have top, uh, you know, bottom up, yeah. um, or ground up, I should say, probably um, uh, infrastructure in place to work with each community. There's good work being done. So you talk about the hunter. Look at look at the hunter, for example. There's the Hunter Jobs Alliance, which is an alliance between a couple of unions, Australian Manufacturing Workers Union uh, in particular, um, and. Uh, the Labor Environmental Action Network and a lot of environmental groups, and they're really working on jobs in the future. That's the sort of thing which can happen from the ground up, and with a little bit more, you know, government interest in that sort of work, uh, a lot, of, a lot could be done. And you know, I certainly would be engaged in all that work. Okay. Well, let's move now to the inner city or the suburbs. I went to the uh, Wentworth Forum, and Tim Murray told us that you'd promised a battery for Bondi, and um, they were, he was very keen. True story. Yeah, solar panels on apartments or, or apartment dwellers, renters mm. and apartment dwellers to have um, access to clean energy. So that's exciting for city people to hear that you know, there's a bit of a, a push in that direction. And you're planning to also upgrade the grid so that all this new renewable energy will feed into it. So, I mean, Saul Griffiths always talks about electrifying everything. Um, tell us how close this will get us to zero emissions. To, you know, do this all in the suburbs? Well, it's part of our plan. So we'll have 400 community batteries across the country because I talked about the need for more storage, right? So that's the big challenge. We know how to do renewable energy. The private sector is willing to get on with it. Once the grid's fixed, so the regulator stops knocking back renewable energy installations because the grid can't cope. But storage is another question. AEMO recently put out a report showing that we need to triple our energy storage if we're going to move to a much more renewable economy. Because, you know, the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine. Yeah, I get that, right? But that's not an excuse not to do it. It's a reason to store more of it so that we've got it when we need it, just like we store water in dams. We can drink water any day we like. Of course, we store a lot of it, whether it's been raining or not. Uh, we, renewable energy can be the same. Community batteries are part of that. Yes, we have announced one for Bondi. Uh, I did that with Tim Murray the other day. I've announced uh, two more today in Wollongong, for example. They'll be spread across the country um, because, you know, uh, uh, community battery is a nice efficient way of storing energy because household batteries will remain very expensive. The cost will come down, but they're yeah. going to remain, yeah. frankly, pretty expensive for most families. If you make a decision to put in a household battery, you're not really at this point in most instances making an economic decision. You're making an environmental decision. You're not really waking one in your own economic best interest because they're so mm. expensive. Some exceptions to that, but that's, that's mainly the rule. But a community battery you can sign up for for a couple of bucks a week store your renewable energy in that battery and draw it out in the evening. So it's a virtual household battery at a small fraction of the cost. Um, so that's part of our, that's part of our plan. Uh, and it's part of the storage plan because that's what's so important. Okay. Well, what about the farming sector? The COP26, they had a big thing called the methane pledge. And they said that methane's 80 times more damaging to climate than in the short term than carbon dioxide mm. and our meat and livestock people, their association, they seem to be betting a lot on seaweed food supplements. I've heard a lot about mm. that asparagopsis. We've interviewed people mm. about that over the years. Uh, this is to reduce the methane from cows, but I don't get it. I had a lot of correspondence with people when I interviewed people about asparagopsis. They rang me up and said, oh, well, you know, most of Australian cattle are on great big ranges in the Northern Territory mm. of Queensland. Uh, you know, herded by helicopters, they're not going to be eating asparagus. Asparagus. Well, that asparagopsis, yeah, that's how yeah. I remember what it's called. Think of asparagus and then the opopsis. Yeah. Um, that's right. Um, they're right, there's challenges, but that doesn't mean it can't play a role and we shouldn't, and it shouldn't be playing a role. I'm very excited about the role that asparagopsis can play. I mean, the evidence shows that it's reducing methane emissions from cattle by, you know, extraordinary amounts, you know, well over 80%. So that has to be part of the mix. Yes, we're a broadacre farming society, not a feedlot farming society. So it's harder, sure. But we don't have the luxury of not tackling methane reductions. You know, we have to, and agriculture is part of that. And farmers want to. You know, there's, again, another myth that farmers are against climate action. Not true, in my experience. Oh, no, again, you know, far, far, farmers are a broad church. There are some there, sure. There are some farmers who deny climate change, but most don't because they see the country. They love the country they farm. They see it changing. They see it becoming less productive. Um, and they're not happy about that. They want climate action. You know, I've done a fair bit of work with Farmers for Climate Action and other groups. Yeah. Um, 
so they want to be part of the conversation. But so, you know, is Asparagopsis the silver bullet? No, of course it's not. Um, is it part of a, a silver buckshot? Perhaps it is. Uh, perhaps it's just one of many elements that we need to try to get uh, methane out. We don't have the option of either or, Vivian. Mm. You know, uh, either we could do this or either we could do that. No, we don't have that option. I know because it's we've got so much catching thing. up to do. We've yeah. got to do and. We've got to do Asparagopsis and. We've got to do soil management and. We've got to do carbon farming and. We've got to do all of it. Yeah. What about land clearing? Well, land clearing um, uh, is by and large regulated by the states. Um, um, I have said that where the, where the Commonwealth mainly comes in the land clearing is uh, ACUs, Australian Carbon Credit Units, oh. which can be bought to avoid car, uh, land clearing. Now, I want to ensure that system has integrity because yeah. I've seen concerning reports Me too. that it's buying land clearing that would not have occurred. You know, they're, they're claiming a carbon credit not to clear land. They had never had any intention of clearing. Uh, I announced as part of our policies that we'd review that uh, the carbon credits to ensure their integrity. I did that before even those reports emerged. Um, but, you know, that's even more important uh, with that. All right. Well, just to finish, the, we're nearly to the election a few weeks now, and I'm dreading the fear tactics and the ugliness that usually comes out at the end. Um, I notice, and you probably have to withstand quite a bit of it, and a lot of money, I think, is going into dividing us. I just feel that. And we get cynical and demoralised hearing about state capture by fossil fuel money. And I wonder, I wonder what can Labor do to unify citizens who are losing faith that our sort of democracy or our politicians can keep us safe in this absolutely historic challenge? Well, we deal with a fear campaign with a fact campaign. And yes, it's frustrating. I mean, I deal with it every day. You know, normally about this time of day, an inquiry will come in from a newspaper and say, you know, can you... Um, you know, uh, answer these concerns about your climate policy and its economic impact when an answer by five o'clock, uh, you know, it'll be on the front page of the papers tomorrow often. But we just give the facts and we deal with it. Um, so that's what we do. And with the support of people, you know, we can stare down fear campaigns and scare campaigns and we can have good policies with good facts behind them. In terms of unifying, that's still very much our approach. I mean, Anthony wants to be a prime minister that unifies Australia around climate change because... Mm -hmm. Everybody pays a price for climate change, right? People in the industries pay a price. People in the regions probably pay a higher price, but they're still paying a price. Everybody can benefit from action on climate change. This is identity politics at its worst. Mm. You know, the, the Conservatives pitting Australians against each other, saying people like you, Vivian, don't care about regional Australians. Of course you care about regional Australians, right? Um, that's, but they, but they, they're saying, oh, inner city wine bar shippers, mm -hmm. you know, care about climate change and farmers don't. It's not true. And we've got to have a government which actually unites Australians around noble goals, national goals, and none is more noble or important than action on climate change. Very good. Thank you. We've been speaking to Chris Bowen, who's a Member of Parliament, and he's part of the Labor Party, hoping to win the next election. Thank you very much, Chris. Certainly are. Thank you, Vivian. This song is by a young boy called Rory Phillips. It has been entered in the Environmental Music Prize so check out 3CR Climate Action Show and the details where you can vote will be up on our podcast summary. Rory's, <clears throat> they've got this two weeks to go for voting. Rory's song is called The Truth.
of Wentworth in Sydney. Dave Sharma for the Liberals is hanging on by a slim margin. The independent contender is Allegra Spender, whose mother was the late Carla Zampatti and whose father and grandfather were Liberal parliamentarians. There was one swing here after Malcolm Turnbull when Dr Karen Phelps achieved the Medivac bill to bring refugees here for medical treatment, but this was repealed when the seat went back to the Liberals. Climate change is a top issue here, and the local group Voices for Wentworth have been unifying the skills and ideas of this community all through the worst days of COVID. I went to many meetings in pubs and halls, and they had many online that allowed us to discuss, and they surveyed all the main issues in this community, and really climate action is very much top of mind. I've edited out the climate-related comments from Labor, Greens, Liberals, Independent and the Liberal Democrats. The MC was journalist Matt Wade, who drew the order of speakers out of a hat. Thank you to St George's Church, who got us all together. So now we go to St George's Hall, Five Ways Paddington, to hear the Wentworth Forum. Thanks very much, Matt. I'm David Shoebridge, uh, a, a Green, the Greens candidate for the Senate in New South Wales, and I'm standing here because our Greens candidate for Went, Wentworth, Dominic Wykenack, is dealing with sorry business, as, as far too many First Nations peoples deal with um, in this country. Um, but I'd like to, first of all, acknowledge we're gathering together on Gadigal land. Um, as a Greens MP, um, I think you've, I've had a track record, I hope, of the last 11 years walking together with First Nations peoples, and my party is deeply committed to social and environmental justice. And for me, when it comes to social and environmental justice, that starts with First Nations justice. So we're gathered together on Gadigal land. This land always was and always will be First Nations land. And we, we hopefully live that politics as a party. Um, this is a critical election for us. It's a critical election for the planet. We have a very narrow timeframe in which to deal with what is an impending climate catastrophe. And um, as, as somebody who's read the science and a party that um, politics follows the science. To watch climate change be a non-issue between the Labor Party and the Coalition as we come into this party, both of them with dangerously reckless approaches to climate, indeed both of them supporting the opening or expansion of 114 new coal and gas projects right at the time that we know we have to start drawing down carbon. I find it, this is perhaps one of the most reckless political election, political campaigns we've seen. So um, uh, our party is proud to present a comprehensive package to deal with climate 
um, to deal with fairness and to keep coal and gas in the ground. Because if you have a politician stand up here and say they care about climate, but they want to open the Beetaloo gas basin and use our public money to do that, millions and millions of dollars of public money, and that's the joint position of Labor and the Coalition, and then they say that they actually care about climate, you can't do those two things together. You can't expand coal and gas. You can't continue to have Australia the third largest uh, carbon exporter on the planet behind just Russia and Saudi Arabia. I mean, that's not a pedestal we want to stand on, is it? Um, so we have a very short window of opportunity to address this. And, and we need to vote like the future matters. And we need to do politics like the future matters. So um, our package not only will see us get to 100% renewables by 2030, which is super achievable, super achievable, but it'll see us get to net zero by 2035. It'll see us um, ramping down the export thermal coal industry and ending it by 2030 and using that window to obtain the funds we need with an export levy on that coal, uh, on those coal exports to build the new industries that we need, to build the exciting future of offshore wind um, uh, that pumps into our industrial heartlands in Newcastle and Wollongong, to, to build and invest in green steel, to actually be part of the solution. Um, so that's why we're running in this election, to actually be a voice for the future, a voice for the science, and I think a voice for our collective our collective well-being. We have a very short window to act, and it starts on 21 May. Daniel Lukovitz for the Liberal Democratic Party spoke to us from Perth. It was revealing that Liberal Dave Sharma is placing him number two on his How to Vote card. What we're basically doing is we're selling the family farm. We're investing in and betting on things that aren't going to work. And it's going to result not only in a lot of Australians basically becoming poorer and sitting in darkness, but it's going to make billions and billions of dollars for people who maybe they're not making it on coal, so they want to make it on renewables. And that's that's a problem for me because what I hear about this is where you know we're going to put in we're going to put in batteries, we're going to put in a community battery. Well, the chemicals inside that battery, the metals inside that battery, cobalt, is mined by six-year-old children in Central Africa. Now, it's really easy to turn a blind eye to that, but every single person in that room is going to say, oh, we care, we really care about things, doesn't seem to care about that. And, yes, it's fine to say, well, we have an abundance of wind and solar, except we don't when the wind's not blowing and we don't when the sun is not shining, so you need to put in batteries. Now, batteries don't produce energy. They only store energy that came from somewhere else. One of the other things I want to address is this myth, this myth that you hear of fossil subsidies or that the government or the taxpayer is subsidising those industries. Let me tell you something. Those industries are subsidising the rest of this country. The amount of revenue that's produced from our mining exports uh, dwarfs everything else. Now, let me just make one thing very clear. I am not bankrolled by billionaires. I fact-checked what Daniel said from the Australia Institute's Rod Campbell. He says that last year, the Australian federal and state governments provided a total of $10.3 billion to assist fossil fuel industries. And according to Michael West, the Australian government is paying more in subsidies to fossil fuel companies than they are getting back in royalties. Thank you. Good morning. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, the Gadigal and Bidjigal people, and their elders past and present. In my first two campaigns, when I understood there was a paradox in Wentworth that we have the lowest solar uptake in the country or nearly lowest solar uptake in the country. And yet people are so passionate about climate change. The big issue there is that to get solar onto apartment buildings where 60% of the people in Wentworth live um, is quite a complex and difficult task. I've got a team of people together to solve that problem. I believe we have a solution now and I joined um, Waverley Council and was voted in to get that done. And my first act as a Waverley Councillor was to move a motion to start to see that happen. Um, we will put in more electric vehicle charging stations. I was with Chris Bowen on Thursday and he said he will give a community battery, one of the 400 that Labor is providing uh, to Bondi. So um, I look forward to working with you all on solving climate action, whether I win this election or not. Thank you. I'm Allegra Spender and I'm standing as an independent candidate for Wentworth. I'm a CEO, I'm a renewable energy advocate, and I'm a mum. I've lived in Wentworth almost my entire life and I've run businesses for the last 12 years. I decided to run because I'm fed up with what's going on in Canberra. 
I'm fed up with the lack of action on climate change. I'm fed up with the lack of integrity in politics. I'm fed up with the treatment of women in our parliament and in our country. For a long time, Wentworth has been a safe liberal seat, but Wentworth won't be taken for granted anymore. We've tried electing MPs to be part of a government, but this hasn't delivered a government that reflects the values of this community. Instead, we've left with Scott Morrison and Barnaby Joyce's representative in Wentworth, not our representative in Canberra. A strong independent can turn that around. Independents have already done that in Warringah, Mayo and Indi. They've gone to Canberra and they've made differences for their community on issues such as education or water management. This, this election electorate has seen the difference that Karen Phelps made. You know, in less than one year in Canberra, she passed legislation that got critically ill asylum seekers and refugees off Nauru and Manus. Our local representative um, uh, voted against that and repealed that law almost as soon as he joined parliament. I've lived here in Wentworth my whole life, so I know this community well. During the campaign, I've spoken to so many people around here and have been, you know, been really talking about what are the values of this community. And this is best summed up by Sean, who's a guy I met in Bondi. And he said, look, climate change is important to me. I want to have a, a, an environment I can pass to my kids. He said, I want to, I value kindness and decency in my society. I value those and I want to see that. And he said, and I'm a business owner, and so I need a strong economy and a strong environment for business. And I'm 100% behind those values. If I'm elected, my priorities will be strong action on climate change, because this is an environmental imperative to act. It gives us a $1 trillion economic opportunity and also addresses, can address cost of living pressures that we are facing right now. I'll be driving integrity, transparency, and accountability in politics, such as a strong national integrity um, uh, commission. And I will drive a future focused and inclusive economy that supports business, innovation, and women. And finally, and unabashedly, look at our policies through the lens of kindness and decency. This is the community platform. This is what our community asks for. And I will be consulting the community and consulting experts for every single thing that I do. In Wentworth, we have you know, six can or seven candidates, but only two who can actually win this election. So you can either choose the Liberal Party's representative in Wentworth, three more years of inaction in climate change, three more years broken promises on integrity, three more years of votes for Scott Morrison and Barnaby Joyce, whatever their agenda. Or you can choose an independent who will champion the issues that matter to you most, who will listen to you and, and get things done in Canberra, an independent that can truly create a better climate for Wentworth. I'm uh, Dave Sharma. I've been your local MP here for the last three years. And prior to that, I was a career diplomat representing Australia overseas in places like Israel, Papua New Guinea and Washington, D.C., this election is taking is, is a very pivotal election. It's taking place at a time of great global uncertainty. We've seen Russia's aggression against Ukraine not only lead to terrible humanitarian consequences and economic disruption, but it's also challenging the very basis of the global order that has underpinned Australia's security and prosperity for the past 70 years. We've also seen overseas the ongoing effects of the COVID pandemic supply chain disruptions and global economic uncertainty and geopolitical tensions see a return of inflationary pressures and high degree of economic certainty, economic uncertainty. Now, Australia as a country has come through the pandemic very strongly. We've got one of the highest vaccination rates of any country in the world. We've saved tens of thousands of lives compared to comparable countries around the world. Our economy is larger than it was before the pandemic, and we've got more people in jobs now than we did before the pandemic, but there are many challenges ahead. And I'm unashamedly putting myself forward as part of a government team, as part of a, a voice in the room where decisions are made, as someone who will have a seat at the decision-making table, and as part of a government and a team that has a plan to safeguard our economy, to strengthen our security, to address things like cost of living pressures on families, to invest more money in the basic social services we all rely upon, and to continue to invest in low emissions technologies that will accelerate our transition to a net zero future. Thank you. How does each candidate see Australia's position in the Pacific? And how do we refocus our relationships with our neighbours, both in the Pacific Islands and Indonesia? We'll go with the reverse order again. So just about six weeks ago, I had an online Zoom session with Anate Tong, the former president of uh, Kiribati. 
And he's an extremely brave person. And he went into the UN repeatedly and said, if you care about the Pacific, if you care about the future of our actual countries and culture, you've got to deal with climate. So unless Australia is willing to keep the coal in the ground, stop Newcastle being the largest single coal export, when we go into the Pacific, they look at us like a vandal, like a neighbour who's a vandal who wants to destroy their future. And, and it has been a, a, an appalling, an appalling lack of attention to the South Pacific that we've seen and the Pacific that we've seen under the coalition government. So it starts with climate, but then it starts with issues like extending our foreign aid to 0.7% of GDP and actually investing in those countries and being a good neighbour. And if you really are concerned about future insecurity in this country, look at what climate change will do to Indonesia and the instability in Indonesia. That is a frightening prospect. And the best way for regional security is addressing climate change, being a good neighbour, increasing our aid. Asked about how Australia can refocus our relationship in the Pacific, Lukovitz said, uh, look, as someone who studied risk and security for many years, I know a shakedown and a con artist when I see it. When you look at some of these Pacific Island countries that are basically coming to us for money and saying, oh, we need the money because of climate change. If you're silly enough to believe that, uh, you know, you, you shouldn't be lecturing anybody on economic management. It's no real surprise to me why China has effectively endorsed the Greens uh, you know, it seems to be very cosy with Labor precisely because of these policies. We have a national defence challenge, which is very simply this. If we, God forbid, went to war with China tomorrow, the first thing we'd have to do is ask them to manufacture all the ammunition for us. We have no resilience. We have no self-reliability or capability. And that's a problem. Now, there is a huge opportunity in the South Pacific for us to actually create new third world manufacturing and bring them into the first world and use those cheap resources rather than just being paying sit down money to them. But also the suggestion that we make any meaningful impact on climate change. The reality is that if Australia shut down tomorrow, there were no lights, there was no electricity, there were no cars, there was nothing. Our total impact would be such a, a rounding error on a global scale that why we would ruin the things that we have to do that to me is insane. There's some very young people who are going to kick us off. I think it's Mia who's going to ask the first question. And maybe you could explain their, their yes and no answer questions. Am I right? Okay, where you go. As a young person, and I know for the electorate of Wentworth, climate action is a crucially important issue and something deciding my parents and my family's vote. But yeah, yes or no, are you aware of the International Energy Agency's report published in May last year titled Net Zero by 2050 that unequivocally stated that there is no room in the global carbon budget for any further expansion of fossil fuel projects and called for an immediate halt to any new coal, oil and gas projects? Yes, and we developed policies for this federal election that implement it to keep coal, oil and gas in the ground. 75% uh, reduction in carbon emissions by 2030 and net zero by 2035. We read it and then we delivered policies to implement it. Yes, I'm aware of it. Yes, I am absolutely aware of it. And, and I don't support any more new coal and gas because I think it's, you have to work with the experts and this is the International Energy Agency. So I don't support that. And I, I also stand with the both the evidence around 50% reduction, um, which is what globally we need by 2030, um, but also what the Business Council of Australia says we can achieve and actually be in our good economic interests by that sort of reduction by 2030. No. Yes, I'm aware of the report. Oh, I read it to my kids every night before bedtime. But if we're serious about things, we need to put in nuclear energy and that's something we need to be talking about. Uh, so the Murray-Darling, I think like two trillion litres of water have gone missing from it due to water theft. Do you have any policy or plan to basically stop this water theft? Look, it's an enormous concern, and I think it's a you know concern you know for many people. And this is this is an example, I think, where this is it's not just the Murray Darling. It's a it's how we consider and work in our environment in this country. And I think I'm you know the concern that we haven't implemented, for instance, the Samuel Review, which is about um, you know it's about protecting our environment. You know that the government at the moment has Tony Abbott's climate targets and the impact that that has on our environment. These are some of the things that mean that we are not working with our environment. So it's about the Murray Darling but it's absolutely much broader than that. And that's why I'm standing as an independent because I want to change that. Look, absolutely water theft from the Murray-Darling River system should be stopped. Um, it was the Howard government that created the Murray-Darling Basin Authority, which was designed to overcome some of the state rivalries um, or you know, parochial state interests, which were hurting the health of that river system. So absolutely we should stop water theft and we should make sure we um, make sure that irrigators do not take more water than they're entitled to or that would compromise the health of the uh, Murray-Darling River system. 
Look, it's a terrific question and I'm very glad you came because, um, I, yes, we've had dry seasons and wet seasons in Australia, but it's only the last two decades we've had uh, thousands of gigaliters being held by big corporate cotton irrigators preventing that water coming into our into our rivers and, and seeing the fish kills and the scale of the fish kills. Uh, twice now I have voted in the New South Wales Parliament to, to strike down coalition regulations supported by state and federal that would have legitimised the theft of thousands and thousands and thousands of gigaliters um, in storage in New South Wales, um, which would have de destroyed the future of our rivers. Yes, we need evidence-based. I think Tim putting forward the, the concept of, a, a, of an independent commission, which will have evidence-based set of policies for water in New South Wales and the country is absolutely critical. Um, but it does start with recognising we can't put those thousands and thousands of gigaliters in big corporate cotton farms and expect the river to flow. You've been listening to the Climate Action Show. Thanks to Chris Bowen and Eliza Mitchell. Thanks to the minister who organized the Wentworth Forum, Reverend John Stanley. Thanks to Teja Pala and Lizzie who helped me with the questions. And thanks to Rory Phillips for his song, The Truth. My name is Vivian Langford, goodbye and good luck. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't treasure. be scared. It's coal. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show. Sleep, Australia, sleep. The night is on the creek. Shut out the noise all around Sleep, Australia, sleep And dream of counting sheep Jumping in fields coloured brown Who rock the cradle and cry Who rock the cradle Australia sleep as off the cliff the kingdoms leap. Count them as they say goodbye. Count down the little things, the insects and birds. Count down the bigger things, the flocks and the herds. Count down our rivers, our pastures and trees. But there's no need to hurry Oh, sleep now, don't worry Cause it's only a matter of degrees Fog, Australia, fog Just like the boiling frog As we go, we won't feel a thing
Goodbye. Thanks to Kev Carmody for that song. And now here's Mia Motley, Prime Minister of Barbados. She's speaking to the United Nations in Glasgow, and I chose her speech because I want to lift the debate. The Australian politicians are mostly just speaking to us, speaking about us, not considering the world in which we have a huge responsibility because we are in that top three fossil fuel exporting nations. Can't emphasize that enough. It came right through to me in all the forums. After Saudi Arabia and Russia, we are the third exporter and we must take we must take ownership of that. And what are we going to do about it? I don't think any of them are talking about it yet. But here's what Mia Motley says. What the world needs now, my friends, is that which is within the ambit of less than 200 persons who are willing and prepared to lead. Leaders must not fail those who elect them to lead. And I say to you, there is a sword that can cut down this Gordian knot, and it has been wielded before. The central banks of the wealthiest countries engaged in $25 trillion of quantitative easing in the last 13 years. $25 trillion. Of that, $9 trillion was in the last 18 months to fight the pandemic. Had we used that $25 trillion to purchase bonds, to finance the energy transition, or the transition of how we eat, or how we move ourselves in transport, we would now today be reaching that 1.5 degrees limit that is so vital to us. I say to you today in Glasgow that an annual increase in the SDRs of $500 billion a year for 20 years put in a trust to finance the transition is the real gap, Secretary General, that we need to close, not the 50 billion being proposed for adaptation. And if 500 billion songs big to you, guess what? It is just 2% of the 25 trillion. This is the sword we need to wield. Our world, my friends, stands at a fork in the road one no less significant than when the United Nations was formed in 1945. But then, the majority of our countries here did not exist. We exist now. The difference is we want to exist a hundred years from now. And if our existence is to mean anything, then we must act in the interests of all of our people who are dependent on us. And if we don't, we will allow the path of greed and selfishness to sow the seeds of our common destruction. The leaders of today, not 2030, not 2050, must make this choice. It is in our hands, and our people and our planet need it more than ever. We can work with who is ready to go, because the train is ready to leave. And those who are not yet ready, we need to continue to ring circle and to remind them that their people, not our people, but their citizens, need them to get on board as soon as possible. Code red, code red to the G7 countries. Code red, code red to the G20. For those who have eyes to see, for those who have ears to listen, and for those who have a heart to feel, 1.5 is what we need to survive. Two degrees, yes, SG, is a death sentence for the people of Antigua and Barbuda, for the people of the Maldives, for the people of Dominica and Fiji, for the people of Kenya and Mozambique, and yes, for the people of Samoa and Barbados. We do not want that dreaded death sentence. And we have come here today to say, try harder try harder. Our people are watching and our people are taking note. And are we really going to leave Scotland without the resolve and the ambition that is sorely needed to save lives and to save our planet? Thank you. Sleep, my country, sleep, as off the cliff the kingdoms leap. Count them as they pass on by.